screen and all of that. <clears throat> you, uh, hello, Susan. It's really glad to see you. Been a while. Um, we had gotten started on uh, the issue of, of, of chaos in a situation as opposed to, no, the situation is just reality in the moment and it's just fine. The real chaos is coming from the minds of the beholder, the ones who were in the situation. And that when I mentioned that really the chaos comes from the fact that we have gotten the delusion that things are important. And that when we recognize that nothing's really nothing really matters anyway, that all of this meaning of life and whatnot comes out of, let us say, a religious frame of reference, which we can talk about later. But then you ask about the word nihilism. Isn't that nihilistic to see things that are not important? Um, and it's a good point uh, to understand nihilism in relationship to annihilationism in uh, reference to eternalism and semi-eternalism. So let's define all of those so, that, so we can get uh, something out of that. Uh, religions and um, various things uh, teach that uh, in this life, you're pretty well stuck and everybody knows that except that if you do what we tell you to do, put money in our box, come to our confessional booth, or uh, perform our ceremony, then after you're dead, you will get a reward. Okay, so the idea of survival of death is very much wrapped up with eternalism, that things will always be here. Um, that that's a, an idea that we come up uh, with as children, that when we're our children and we see things a certain way, we kind of assume that it's always been that way. An example that happened to me, and I see this with the, with the young students a lot, that um, when they're, let us say, born uh, at a time so that before they're 10 years old, they know what a cell phone is, they kind of assume that cell phones have been around all along or uh, something like that without even understanding that there was a major process going on from tubes to transistors to LEDs to battery production. And when I say LEDs, that was a major stumbling block. It wasn't until the 1990s that, uh, that an Indian actually got uh, an LED uh, to glow at a blue color that all they could do was manage was red, green, and yellow. But when they had blue colors, now they can uh, uh, simulate the human eye and put LED screens up. All right, we've had LEDs, LEDs from the 1970s, but we still had CRTs, great big monitors. But it was in the 90s when they came up with blue LEDs and that gave way to flat screen TVs. All right, so, uh, People don't know the history and evolution of things as they go along, so we make assumptions about stuff. This is what gives rise to uh, an easy belief in eternalism. Things have always been like that. And so it's kind of easy for us to believe that things will continue to go on and on and on and on and on. 
to where no, everything is in a state of entropy. And what entropy means is, is that things are always moving from simplicity to complexity, that there is a, uh, that things break apart. Uh, an example of that is, is that uh, it takes a while to get all the bread, the lettuce, the hamburger, the mustard, the mayonnaise, and all of that to get a hamburger. But if you leave that hamburger sitting out, it will not just deteriorate, but it will deteriorate into something very, very complicated, very, very mushy. In the beginning, you can see where the bread is. Eventually, you won't be able to find the bread in there. Okay, so everything falls apart. And this is something that the eternalists are missing out on. They think that things will last forever. There's also semi-eternalism, and semi-eternalism means that the end of it is going to be way out there so far in the distance that we might as well assume that it is eternal. So when statements uh, are made like heaven and earth too shall pass away, the idea is, yeah, eventually, but that's so far off into the future that we can just, just assume that it, you know, is not going to pass away. Um, and so this is the idea of eternalism. Now, in the time of the Buddha, they had uh, a concept that stated something like this. Upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated. This is much more of the view in Western uh, society of the position of an atheist. The position of an atheist is I am me and I will be me until I die. And when I'm dead, there's no more me. I'm annihilated. Okay. That's slightly different because, in fact, the me that is in the, uh, uh, the atheist mentality is, is that while there is a me, I am responsible for my life. And that when Christianity has a concept of forgiveness, what that means is uh, to go and send some more. To where the atheist at least has the idea that uh, he's got to live a good life. And this can be seen actually in the statistics. This may be of interest to some people. And that is, is that county by county, the amount of religiosity and the amount of corruption can be measured. And those counties that um, are highly religious will have a higher incident of um, child molestation, of uh, domestic violence, alcohol, drug abuse, and just generally getting locked up. Now, there may be some reasons for that to be skewed, but for those counties that are generally atheist, which would generally be around cities and whatnot, there is lower incidence of uh, domestic violence, lower incidence of, of alcohol. And the reason for that, it seems, is, is that the, uh, the, the general society is educated in morality in a certain way. But there are those who add the kicker of, oh, but you can get a, a forgiveness for all of that, and then you can go and do it some more. Or, uh, and that gives the attitude of boys will be boys, or the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, or a leopard can't change his spots. In other words, you are doomed from original sin. You have been screwed up, and there's nothing you can do about it. Just go have fun making trouble. Go do it. 
you know, because that's your nature. Uh, and you will get forgiveness and then you will live in eternal bliss. Okay, if you perform the right ceremonies and do the right things at the right church. Okay, that's the eternalism versus the uh, uh, the uh, annihilationism. Now let's look at nihilism for a moment. The idea of nihilism is that there is no authority, there is no morality, there is no mother and father, there are no saints, there are no mystics, there are no uh, uh, good cops and bad cops, they're just stupid cops. And for that reason, then the one who has that kind of view will make statements like, I can go kill 500 cows on this side of the river and then cross the river and go over and kill another 500 cows on the other side of the river and nothing will happen to me. Okay, well, you know that this comes out of the sutras. This comes out of ancient India with sacred cows and all of that kind of stuff. So that's about the worst thing that can be done is going around killing all the cows on this side of the river and then go kill all the cows on the other side of the river. What that mentality uh, is only looking at is some sort of magical authority, not realizing that all the villagers on this side of the river are going to do everything they can to stop you from killing all their cows. And not only that, but if that happens and you chase uh, and go to the other side of the river, by the time you get there, everybody on that side of the river is going to be waiting for you to keep you from getting to their cows. Okay, so that that part of nihilism is also a kind of magical thinking. You can see that in drive-by shootings. You can see that in mobs and mafias that they think that they can get away with it at a surface level. But deep down inside, they're afraid of the retribution in the sense that the big gods or the big goons are not going to get me, but <clears throat> the guys under me may rat on me. OK, if the good if the guys below me don't rat on me, then I can take care of all the politicians. So that's the idea of nihilism. Now, the Buddhist teaching is none of those things. So when we talk about nihilism, what you were saying was in a way correct in the sense that there's nothing there. Okay, except that we know that that's not the truth, because what really is there is your feelings, your observations. There is a human being that is actually there. There is uh, is incorrect to say that there is nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay, <clears throat> what is more correct, what the Buddha actually teaches we don't even have a word for because those words that we have are out of Western philosophy. If we were to invent a word, it would probably be temporarily -ism. Temporarily or maybe psychalism. Mm -hmm. Say that one again. Cycle. Cycalism. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Sam, sam Okay. Everything yes. is in. Yes a turmoil, everything is in a cycle. This yeah. is the better way of looking at it. And when I say turmoil, I'm talking about the fact that everything is changing. Turmoil is not the same thing as crisis or um, uh, chaos or what you were talking about, um, that turmoil is kind of like an explosion where everything gets blown up to where uh, 
the kind of chaos that you're talking about is much more like a um, uh, a tornado or maybe even a whole group of tornadoes. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Okay, so uh, everything is in motion. Everything is in flux. And um, when we can see that from a distance, when we begin to understand the cycles and the flows of this samsara, then we can, uh, <clears throat> let us say, with that wisdom, use that wisdom for um, getting along in that situation. Okay, so an example of that, in fact, this is a very interesting example. The little boy is with his grandmother at the uh, state fair. And the little boy really wants to go right on the, uh, the, uh, the ride. Uh, let us say it's the roller coaster. And he has studied that roller coaster and he knows it's the ups and the downs and loops and whatnot like that. But his grandmother doesn't want him to ride on that roller coaster. So she rides with him on it. But she's not interested in the roller coaster. She's just interested in protecting her grandson. Okay. So he knows that roller coaster. He knows that it goes up and it goes down and it twists this way and it twists that way. And it's got this exhilaration and whatnot. And grandma is not even interested in that. So now that she's on the roller coaster and it starts to go uphill really strongly, up, 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 she thinks it is going to go up forever. And then when it gets to the top, she'll say, oh, this is a nice view. And then all of a sudden it's going downhill at a remarkable pace. And now she gets afraid again. <clears throat> and then the loop-de-loop, -loop, you see this, uh, the, the grandson is enjoying the heck out of this because he knows what's going to happen. He knows what every turn is, but she is only looking at it from a narrow point of view of what's happening now without getting a better picture of what's going on. In a way, the nihilist is very much like that, that they have very, very small tunnel visions. They cannot see the bigger picture at all. All they can see is, is that I can get away with it right now. Then, in fact, this, this, um, this nihilism that we're talking about, the Buddha actually refers to this in Sutta as wrong view. Wrong view is the nihilistic view uh, that uh, nothing matters. Uh, but the underlying part of that, just like um, in the song Bohemian Rhapsody, you know that song, I'm sure of it. You're out of that age, okay. And he comes down to nothing really matters. Nothing really matters to me. Okay, that, of course, that is, is that that's not a yippee kayo kaye. Nothing matters. Isn't that marvelous? No, it's nothing really matters in the sense of poor me, boo-hoo. I've had a tragic life, right? And this is the beginning of the wake-up of nothing really matters. But really what matters is the guy who's singing the song. Nothing really matters. Where, in fact, what really does matter is how he feels about nothing really matters. Mm -hmm. But when we recognize that... Uh, he's saying nothing really matters because he's disappointed because he thought that things really did matter. But when we come to understand that nothing really matters, uh, that's freedom, not a disappointment. And there's a lot of songs that have come into um, popularity that, that have that quality. 
send in the clowns? Or um, is that all there is? Or um, there was another one that I was thinking of. Um, these kind of songs uh, speak of disappointment of love. Like looking for love in all the young places or um, uh, is that all there is? Is that nihilistic position? Because we were expecting and hoping for more. Mm -hmm. All right. And also when we're hoping or expecting for more, it's almost like that we're looking or hoping for more to come from some magical sky creature or from some common machine or from something outside ourselves because we don't trust that we can do what needs to be done inside within our own mind. This is where all of this is coming down to is, is the fact that the, the nihilist, the uh, annihilationist and the eternalist all have the idea that it comes from the outside. It's my relationship to society, my relationship to parents, my relationship to some divine being or to the cosmos or to reality in general or whatnot like that. And we all make the brand mistake that no, the real issue is my relationship to myself on the inside. That's where it really matters. Okay, it really matters on the inside how we feel and what we can do to clean that up on the inside. That in fact, the chaos that we're experiencing is not from the situation, it's the creation of the chaos from within. That we create that on the inside because of our own habits, that we were in fact taught this. That one of the um, uh, talks that has been recently published, uh, my friend gave it a new title. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the title that uh, I wanted to use, he changed that to make it uh, I've forgotten what it was now. Sorry about that. It slipped my mind. Uh, so we'll have to go off on something else. And uh, getting old, I find that <laughs> I can think of something and then set it up for the students, and then I forget what it was that I was going to say. Uh, so the the idea that uh, we can we have to be able to see what we're doing on the inside of the mind. And that's why we are taking a look to recognize that uh, the paradise is a paradise, just as it is. We live in a paradise, but we go around trying to find problems with it and fix paradise. And the only thing that we can do with it is to destroy it. One of the examples I give is that I've got a really beautiful semi uh, 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 tree here. A sim sima is a uh, is a ficus. It's very close to uh, the uh, Bodhi tree in the shape of the leaf and the kind of the tree that it is. And uh, I'm very pleased to have it. Just almost I can touch it. It's just right over here. In fact, you can see some of the leaves of it in the background there. Um, the problem with this tree is, is that occasionally you get yellow leaves. 
And so I'm thinking that because, you know, a paradise shouldn't have trees that have yellow leaves. And so I'm going to cut this tree down because it doesn't fit in with my delusion of paradise. Mm -hmm. You see where that's going. That's exactly how we destroy paradise is because we're trying to improve it. We're trying to make it better. Rather than recognizing that the effort that we're taking is actually not a paradise inducing effort and the results of our effort is not paradise producing that in fact paradise is already here if we do nothing we can now enjoy paradise but we don't we want to fix it we keep finding yellow leaves to pick off or maybe whole trees to uproot when in fact there's nothing wrong okay so that's different than the nihilism the nihilism is, is that I can go get my way. That even for the nihilist, it's not that nothing matters. No, me matters. Only me matters. And everything else doesn't matter. But when you recognize that no, it's not uh, just nothing matters, it's me too doesn't matter. That's when freedom really can come in. But we still have the idea of you and me against the world or me against the world. And that we are trained that way from childhood. That in fact, uh, one of the oh, I've got it back now. And that is, is that who am I is one of the questions that we go around asking a lot. Who am I? And that uh, the answer that was put on this e uh, this uh, video that my uh, uh, student said is, is that who who are you or who am I? I am the sum total of all of the malicious gossip and lies that I have been told. That's who I am. I am the sum total of all the malicious gossip and all the lies that I've ever been told. And that's a very good example of uh, exactly who we are. Because who we are is defined by what we've learned. And so we pick up information. We pick up information from our parents and from our teachers from all kinds of places. We store that as almost a guide or a way of living or a set of rules that we carry around in our mind. A set of rules about how things ought to be. Okay, it's almost in a way of thinking this is the clinical definition of paradise. And if this reality doesn't match this clinical definition of paradise, we've got to go fix the real paradise to flip the clinical definition of paradise rather than managing our uh, uh, definition of paradise to make it real to fit the actual paradise that we're in. Okay, so that means that we live in a set of laws, rules, rituals, ways of doing things uh, that we picked up along the way. And much of the stuff that we were told um, was a bait and switch. An example of that is learn your ABCs, learn your one, two, threes. Why, mommy, do I have to learn the one, two, threes and the ABCs so you can learn to read? Well, why should I learn to read so you can get into second grade? Why should I go to second grade so you can get into middle school? Why should I go to middle school so you can get to high school? You see, there's never any real answer to that. There's just more questions. Okay, that in fact, a better thing to do is, oh, if you learn your ABCs right now, I'll give you an M&M. &M. 
because that's how we train. That's how we train dogs. All dog trainers reward the dog for the immediate good benefit of what they're doing. And oftentimes, a child will come in with a ninety percent on a new test, and he's fussed at on the one that he missed, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than getting rewarded for what he does right. So we learn to be critical of ourselves from our parents who were critical of our, of us because they're also critical of themselves. Mm -hmm. This is actually, in a way, the original sin is being critically minded, which fits exactly with the story of Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve's original sin was becoming critical of paradise. And I don't know of any God that can throw you out of paradise, but I do know that we can criticize our paradise into no paradise at all. That's for sure. That. Pardon? That's for sure. Yes. And so the whole teaching then of the Buddha has to do with coming out of critical thinking. And what that means is, is to come out of all the rules, laws, rituals, ceremonies, ways to do things, practices, norms, and all of that kind of stuff that we built in over the years that has at least gotten us functioning as adults, but we're functioning but kind of miserable adults mm. because we're following the rules and getting going along to get along. Now, the first question we could ask is, well, why do humans do that? The answer is, is because it's instinctual. Mm -hmm. That we follow our instincts, we go along to get along. That the nesting instinct, in fact, uh, the young monkey, if he, won't be, if he won't be quiet in the nest, the big gorilla is going to throw him out of the nest because the big gorilla would rather lose one baby that won't shut up rather than the whole nest of gorillas because the panthers are there. Well, how did the panthers get? No, because this baby won't shut up. Okay, so it's a matter of survival that we have to get along with the nest. We have to follow the rules of the nest. And you can see that on a regular basis um, in our society where the teenager, boy or girl, wants to go out for the night and daddy says, no, you can't go out. And here the daughter is all dressed, all dolled up, ready to go out. She wants to go out. And he says, no, you can't go out. This is a school night. And she said, Daddy, I'm going to go out. And he says, if you live with me, you have to do what I tell you to do. And so she turns around and goes to her room and slams the door and then crawls out the window. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole point is, is about the nest and who owns the nest and who makes the rules of the nest. And we grew up in somebody else's nest. Not recognizing now we have an opportunity to create our own nest. What kind of rules are we going to put in our nest? Well, we're going to put in our nest the same rules that we learned because, I mean, that's how it goes. Um, every teenager who, in fact, rebels against their parents at one time or another and, said, and almost vows, I'm not going to be like my dad. By the age of 40, they wake up finally to recognize they're just like him. They're just like him. Um, and I've seen that in myself at times. And in fact, um, uh, 
Oh, this happened so many, many years ago, but I was already pretty well deep into psychology. And so when this happened, I immediately recognized it. And that is, is that some kid was doing something and the, the hand come. I'm left handed. And yet the right hand comes up. Why does that? What is this? What does this mean? If you see a child misbehaving and the hand comes up, what does that mean? They're going to get a spanking. Yeah, it means if you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to hit you. Yeah. Right? And everybody knows that, but no one is really mindful of it. But when that can come up for me, I says, hi, daddy. I know where I learned that maneuver from. I saw my dad do that. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing exactly what he did in exactly the same situation. And it happened instantly. I mean, that arm came up. What's going on with this? <laughs> so our reaction times, we react often based upon a set of rules that have been laid down deep in the mind. The question is not, are you going to do this? But the question of is, can you look at what you're doing? Right. That's the way that we're uh, beginning to change, because that means that if we're looking at what we're doing, we can see the underlying basis of all these rules that we have learned. So when the hand goes up like that, that that time, instead of saying this is me, I recognize, no, this is not me. This is learned behavior. I learned how to do that from my daddy, and I learned about it at the wrong particular moment. <laughs> And so when we recognize that who we are is a sum total of all the stuff that we've learned, that means now that you have an option to change because you're still capable of learning. That is a major change. This is why we call it temporarilism or why we call it samsaralism is because you can change by waking up, by seeing what we're doing, we can wake up and make a change. You are not bound by the chaos that you have created, thinking that the situation is chaotic. And in fact, the situation is not chaotic. The chaos is learned behavior, because that's how your dad and mom responded to a situation. They responded by going into a state of chaos. And here you are, the little girl, and you see that, and you say, oh, the situation is chaotic. Where in fact, that's how you learn how to deal with situations is by creating chaos. That's what mommy and daddy did. And believe me, this is creating chaos. <laughs> I've known kids to burst into tears when that hand comes up like that. Yeah. So. This is the important teaching here is, is that we, in fact, are a blank slate. We were born as a blank slate, and you can clean that slate anytime you remember to clean that slate. And then that old stuff gets printed back up there again, but you can clean it off again. And we have to keep cleaning it over and over and over again because we're in the habit of rewriting that same old stuff. That hand comes back up again and, and that kind of stuff. But now we're mindful of it and we can recognize that's not who I am. I am who I choose to be. 
not what I chose to be when I was a kid, because when I chose to be who I was as a kid, I was operating in ignorance. I did not really understand what was going on. But now you're old enough to take a look. You're old enough to see. You're old enough now to actually grow up and be your own person instead of mimicking the learned behavior that you learned. This is really what the, uh, the teaching is all about. Now, the important thing is, is that you can clean that blackboard every time you remember to clean the backboard. Just like right now, it's that's not who I am. Okay, I can write on that blackboard and say, nope, that's not who I am. <laughs> and I can race that back up, but I have to race it over and over again. And I think also <laughs> being aware. Right, having that, having that awareness to see. Well, that's what we mean. Further. Uh huh. That's that's what we mean by sati. That's yeah. that is kind of okay that we use the English language word aware. Um, another word that we can use. In fact, this one actually has some value when we talk about it in the sense of pay attention. Pay attention. Okay, and I'm looking at the word pay right now. To pay attention means that we've got to put some effort into it. That's the Eightfold Noble Path. One's right effort is to do the paying of the attention. But it's an active thing. Okay, that paying attention is active, it's not passive. And yet many, many people have the idea that meditation is an is a passive thing just to watch what's going on. No, it's not just watching or observing or noting. It's paying attention. Effort. We actually have there is some effort involved. Now that effort gets uh, some help. There's various um, assistance to that. Uh, this is why we refer to it as right noble effort. And the way to talk about right noble effort is, is that it's the least amount of effort needed to actually get the job done. If you don't put enough effort in it, you don't get the job done. And if you put up too much effort, you may destroy the job while you're doing it. And that uh, in the West, it's more likely for the students to put in too much effort. And too much effort we would call concentration. Concentration is actually putting in too much effort. You've seen students struggle with a book and the teacher is saying to concentrate it on it. And so the student is really working at showing the teacher how much work this is for him, but he's still not paying attention to the book. He's still not doing, he's, he's just putting in a lot of effort. He's concentrating, he's trying hard. He wants to figure it out rather than just seeing it as it is. So, uh, this practice that we're talking about is not um, tough, but it's persistent. That's the way to look at it is, is that it's persistent. Um, uh, that sometimes words in the Pali are translated like to strive. All right, we're not that the striving is like the concentration that's putting up too much work. Rather, we're looking at it in the sense of um, just persistence, just taking care of it. All right. Um, the way that a cat plays with a mouse that it's caught. 
He's persistent with it. He doesn't just immediately go in for the kill. That in fact, that's an interesting thing about lions. They eventually will kill the prey, but they play with it for a long time. They ride on its back. You know, jump on it, uh, grab it by the leg, whatever, like this. This is how uh, the animal world uh, does prey is they play with it for a while. So this is how we need to operate with our own um, meditation practice is that we're not trying to kill something. We're just here to play with it. We're going to play with it. So this is the the idea then is, is that when we're sitting there and one of these unwholesome thoughts comes up, we can play with it. Aha, I see you. But the way that we normally want to do it is when we see the hand comes, we get down. Okay, well, now we're doing with this hand what we were about to do with that hand. We're being critical of ourselves again. <laughs> yeah, so true. That, and so that's how we bring our meditation. We bring a critical mind to it. So when Goenka says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind come back again, but the students don't never mind. They want to fuss at themselves. Oh, the mind wandered away from the breath. Oh, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, you're, and, and now we're treating ourselves the way that we were treated when we were kids. We're being critical. We're going back and being Adam and Eve again, that we were in paradise and now we have criticized our paradise and we've thrown ourselves out of our paradise again, rather than recognizing that, oh, Oh, well, look at that. I'm doing just like my dad did, but I am not my dad and I am not going to hit you, kid. I really do like you. And so we uh, take from a critical frame of reference into a nurturing frame of reference. And the frame of reference here is everything is okay. Everything is fine. This situation is not chaotic because I'm not creating the chaos in this situation. We can, uh, we can do this as a training, but just because I'm telling you this doesn't mean that from now on, you're going to be mindful of every situation and not add chaos to it. No, this is a practice. Yes, because you've already built up a practice of chaos. You've been in the habit of that learned behavior that you've learned from society and from your parents and teachers and aunts and uncles and older siblings and all kinds of people. We have learned how to behave in a society and no one in that society is genuinely happy. We have all been taught how to be miserable in paradise. We all are Adam and Eve. How can we regain paradise is by coming out of the the, uh, learned behavior that happens automatically and start looking at what we're doing and evaluating that and recognizing that right now I do not have to have that chaotic thought. I could throw that out and come back to the point, there's nothing to do and no place to go and everything is really easy right now. And we need to practice that over and over and over and over again. This is what the practice is all about. So that when 
the situation requires chaos. You're not going to get it from me because I've trained myself to the point that I don't have to um, uh, join the chaos or to create it. That we could just leave things the way that they are. So an example of that is somebody insults me. My chaos will say, no, that's not true, or I don't like you, or, or what about ism? You criticize me for A, well, you've got A plus B. <laughs> and so we don't like it. But if we are wise, then when someone criticizes, we could take that and look at it and recognize that there must be at least a, an ounce of truth in this 10-pound bag of garbage. Let me find out what's really going on so that I can learn something from it. But normally we just get uptight and, and defensive and uh, 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 then we go on guard. Yeah. And sometimes on, on uh, offense and attack back. Where in fact, there's no reason to attack when somebody criticizes. They're actually in their mind trying to think that they're giving us a gift. So we can accept it as a gift because that gives us a learning opportunity. This is also an, um, a, a fairly interesting part of the teachings of the Buddha that doesn't get well distributed, partly because it is um, expressed as not a should that you should do as a beginning student, but rather is looked on as the outcome of correct practice. And the out, not the final outcome, but just kind of along the way, part of the outcome along the way of one's correct practice is, is that we are now much more dedicated to see the issue, to see the dukkha as it is, so that we could do something about it directly. Which means that if we have done something wrong, if we've misbehaved, if we've broken some rule or something like that, Normally, what we are taught in our uh, society um, is to, to tell a lie, to hide, to deny, and to not learn anything about it. After all, uh, why should I go to confession and confess a crime only to get forgiveness so that I can go and do that crime again? That a real confession should be a confession about the point that I'm not ever going to do that again. I'm going to make a point that I'm going to quit doing that. That's when we can really re, uh, learn from our mistakes. Well, this takes a fairly advanced student, one who is already, say, a bull, already one who has um, right noble attitude. The one who has right noble attitude is I am uh, capable of managing my life. I'm on top of my own world. And if I'm on top of my own world, then any time that I make a mistake, I can fix that easily. Most of us think that, oh, no, I've made a mistake. That's a tragedy. Because the mistake was made, that means that I'm no. So continuing along with what we were talking about, 
there seems now that we're breaking things into two groups or, or two time periods. The time period when you're alone and the time period when you're in others with others. And the time that we're alone is the time to practice. Because it's easier to practice because we only have to deal with one's own chaos. When we're around others, we have more chaos to deal with. But when we are alone, we can get into seclusion and we can practice well so that we can get gain benefit from it. And then once we get the mind cleaned out and in good condition, then we can go test that clean mind out on the world, come back, make some improvements, go back and test it again, come back and, and, and uh, reprogram or whatever like that. Um, then, in fact, if you think about a race like an Indianapolis 500, almost the entire race is not done out on the racetrack. Almost the entire race is training the driver, building the car, and then maintaining the car in the pit stops. Okay. But that's really the race. If you don't do your pit stops, if you don't have a good automobile out there on the race car, racetrack and, and whatnot like that, then the race is irrelevant. And yet that's how we live. We go out in this world completely unprepared for it. And so what we're going to do with meditation practice is the practice of getting ready for the races that will be inevitable. Mm -hmm. But if we are practiced correctly, then we are going to be ready for that race. And we have to know that we're ready for that race. That's the confidence. This is the Sama Sankapa, this part of the Eightfold Noble Path. So this right effort that we were talking about of paying attention once we keep paying attention and paying attention, one of the qualities that grows up is, is that, yes, I can pay attention. Yes, I can do this. I can pay attention. Look, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. And if I remember to, I can continue to pay attention. And so this is the confidence that grows once we begin to take the right effort to pay attention and to make the changes that need to be made. That it, going back to this analogy, that if I'm paying attention to what I'm doing, I'm going to stop doing that. That it naturally occurs that, aha, I see you, Mara, is the statement that the Buddha made, but the aha, I see you, Mara, is not the Mara. Okay, so this analogy, then we can think of it like this, is, is that this is the thought that's going around, and I become attached to it, and now I'm going around with it, okay? But the paying attention or the waking up is, aha, I see you. And now I'm not stuck in it. I'm now no longer the Mara. Then, in fact, I have separated myself from it, and I can recognize I am not that chaos, or in this case, I recognize, no, that's not my hand. That's my daddy's hand that's up there like that. I just learned that behavior from him. And this is also, aha, uh -huh, that thought or that feeling is not me. That's not who I am. 
This is the teachings of the Buddha that a lot of people misunderstand because they get into philosophical, is there a self or not? Rather than, no, we're looking at this is not me, that's not me, and who I actually am is irrelevant. And not only is it irrelevant, it's irrelevant because it should be a moving target. Mm. Who I am is relevant only when I'm stuck as something. Okay, so if I'm blind to me doing this, if I'm intent on hitting that kid and I'm showing him I'm intent on hitting that kid, then I am that hand. But if I look at that hand and say, that's not me. That's the teaching of the Buddha. That's really paying attention to it. If the paying attention is the paying attention to the recognition that that's not who I am. Let me make a change and be something different based upon wisdom, not based upon instinct. And habit. And habit. Instincts and habits. But now we have a choice. And when we have a choice, that means that we're paying attention to see it. And now we can make the choice. The The choice is easy. The paying attention is the hard part. Totally. But once we're paying attention, then we can make the change. And when we keep making the change over and over and over again, now we get the attitude, I can change. I can take care of this situation. This is not who I am. That who I am is a moving target. And who I am is what is happening right in this present moment. That everybody, in fact, is always a moving target. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. And that we actually do that with our language in the sense that people will say, I am angry or I am frustrated. No, you're not angry. You're a human being. You feel anger. There is anger within you, but you are not anger. Why do people say I am angry? No, you're not angry, but you're experiencing anger. Right. Or I am sad. No, you're not sad. You're just experiencing the mental state of Sadness. Why? Because you have created the chaos of sadness in your own mind. But you are not that because it's temporary. It comes and goes. Okay. This is actually one of the major teachings also of the Buddha that people get confused. What we're talking about now is what is referred to as three watches of the night. The three watches of the night are in several of the suttas, and they uh, generally come to the first watch of the night is when the Buddha sees all of his past lives. He was at this village with this name and that village with that name on and on and on and on and on. And many people will see that kind of language as magical because uh, it sounds familiar to Christianity in the sense of after you're dead. But no, what the Buddha is referring to is is that in this life, we go around with this name and that name at this place and that place. I mean, when somebody calls you a bully, that's a new name. And now you're a bully and you feel like the bully or you feel like the kid who is not a bully being called one. And so he's a victim now instead of a bully. But the point is, is that we have names, we have places, and we can remember all of that kind of stuff. And this is called reflection. And we can either do our reflection stupidly or we can do it wisely. 
just getting in the past and thinking about the past and and wanting to change the past by by making the plan for the future. An example of that is like having an argument with someone and then you go to the meditation hall and the guy is sitting there in the meditation hall thinking about the argument that he had with his girlfriend. And he's saying, I want to tell her this and I'm going to tell her that. And that's his meditation. And then he gets up and he goes to tell her this and tell her that. And she says, says something that's completely out of the blue. He didn't think about it. And now he's back to square one again. <laughs> he wasted his time. But in fact, he could have gotten his mind out of that argument and into the fact that he really does uh, love his uh, girlfriend and that he can have uh, uh, sweet, wholesome thoughts about her instead of trying to continue the argument that was in the past. Let the past be dead. It's over with. But no, we keep bringing up the past in order to fix it. And that's ignorant reflection. Wise reflection is to say, hey, that that argument means nothing to me. I really do care more about her than that argument. And so we can wisely reflect upon the past, but only in the sense that it's going to help us feel good in the moment. To where um, unwise reflection of the past is going to make us feel not just unwell in this moment, but gives us work to do into the future. <clears throat> so if we spend our time reflecting upon the past only in the sense that it's dead and that it's gone and it doesn't mean anything right now, that what means now is, is that I'm in charge, that I can make the changes to my mind to bring the chaos out of it and to be okay right now, to bring myself back to a state of well-being or homeostasis or um, uh, ease to come to a state of ease. But we have to remember to do that because you've been, you, you know how to do it. I mean, that's the, the interesting thing is, is that we go around in our society, no one is 100% anything. That even your worst dudes are out looking for pleasure and find it from time to time. Or that you can also say that we do have wholesome thoughts. One of the things that we can do in our society is we have events or times or anniversaries or things like that that are points in time when we're supposed to get all about the bad in our life and concentrate on, like, for instance, Thanksgiving. The whole point about Thanksgiving is for people to gather together to give thanks. But in our society, they go to Thanksgiving, gather together to argue with each other over politics instead. They bring their chaos to the to the place where they should be enjoying each other's company and giving thanks, which is a very admirable quality of uh, being thankful or being uh, filled with, with gratitude. And so that's an admirable quality. And so we set that up to help people to remember these admirable traits. And then we don't take advantage of these um, anchors mm -hmm. um, that the holiday is supposed to mean something. The Memorial Day is supposed to remember to memorialize the dead who have given their lives for our freedom. But generally, it's just a drunken brawl on Memorial Day. <laughs> yeah, they fought. Let's fight, too. <laughs> 
rather than seeing Memorial Day as a um, as a reminder, let's not go to war anymore. Let's stop doing that kind of stuff. So uh, even though our society is there to uh, with these anchors, we don't remember to do it. That this is where sati comes in is to remember to pay attention. That in fact, the remembering to pay attention uh, is more than just remembering to look. That this is where a lot of meditation practices come in, in, in the sense of being a passive practice. An example of a passive practice is what is called choiceless awareness. Because being choiceless is um, a very passive thing to do. Um, and yet, if someone is in a state mentally of choiceless awareness, then if they're having very, very dangerous, bad thoughts, they'll just choiceless aware that I'm thinking about killing somebody. No, 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 no. We have to not be choicelessly aware. We have to pay attention. And that's the paying of the attention that is important here to really look at what we're doing rather than just say, oh, well, everything is OK, because um, that's the same thing as the uh, the nihilism or the wrong attitude uh, or, or let us say wrong view that the Buddha was talking about uh, in the sense of saying that I can get away with it, which means that I'm only looking at my own desire rather than looking at the whole show, looking at it from all different directions. Um, that this is actually one of the problems with the Buddhism in the sense of one's right view. We think of it as a viewpoint or a concept or a belief system or a thought process. And so this is what a view, like a world view. Which is actually in another way of saying that it's an attitude that's a big, big attitude about, um, uh, let us say, this ethnic group are all like this. In Detroit, we had a lot of Polak jokes because there's a lot of Polish people in Detroit. And so um, there's ethnic joke this and ethnic joke that because of all the ethnics being of a certain kind of way. Uh, and this generality then is not actually paying attention to each individual person. That this actually is instinctual. The instinct here is the territorial instinct. In the sense that my tribe or my nest are my people and people who do not live in my nest, who are different than I am, they're outsiders, they're the other. And this is what gives rise to mental um, understandings or the viewpoint of racism or bigotry or uh, we're better than that group of people, that kind of thing. And it's very, very uh, instinctually oriented. But really the point about right view or right attitude is not a view in the sense of a concept, but it's an active verb for this moment, right now, are you looking? Are you viewing? Are you actually paying attention right now? This is what the word view means. One's right view is viewing, looking, 
and right effort is then paying. So pay attention is the right effort and the right viewing. And we have to remember to do that, which is the sati. And when we do that over and over and over again and start to get really good at it, that's when Sama Sankapa comes in with the right attitude. Okay, so if we are practicing the paying attention, then the, that paying attention, that combination means that we can throw this out of the mind right then. We can throw it out because we're seeing what it's doing. And so any kind of unwholesome thought that we have, we can say, ah, I see you. And then we can throw it out. So back to the example of uh, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. That means that we can actually pay attention to the breathing, recognize that we're not breathing, and never mind, come back and start again. But oh no, the Western mind is, ah, I lost it. Oh, I wasn't paying attention. And then they fuss at each other, or fuss at themselves, actually, um, <clears throat> in this critical way. So paying attention to critical thinking is what is part of the game, is to stop being critical, start living in paradise. But we have to remember, we have to pay attention to, this is the paradise that we're in. Because we have been almost completely convinced that it's not, that this is chaos. But no, it's a paradise. If you pay attention, it's paradise. And when you keep paying attention over and over again, then you can remember, I've got this rain. I live in paradise. I've got no problems. And then we can take that attitude back into the world where a lot of other people are seeing their paradise as chaos. And you don't have to see this situation as chaos. You can see it as just another opportunity to enjoy paradise. But this takes training. Yeah. Because you have trained in the opposite direction. You have trained to become chaotic. Now it's time to train to become easygoing. To come back to train to be in paradise. This is the training. This is the practice over and over and over again to pay attention, to throw the chaos out of the mind and come back to paradise over and over and over again. This is one's practice. And it's, and it's certainly spelled right out there in the Eightfold Noble Path. And people memorize the Eightfold Noble Path, but they don't know how to practice it. And so here we give you the idea of to pay attention, to do the effort that's needed to change that stuff. And to come back to this present moment happily. So, do you have any questions about this? No, it's just uh, really helpful, and I'll be heading to bed soon, and I'll get practicing right away. Yes, that's great. So, we'll finish now, and we'll let you go to practice. Thank you. Being in paradise.
everything is okay, everything is fine. Those are the kind of words that you want to use. So you can start using words that are words about paradise. When you're in paradise, there really is no place to go and there's nothing to do. There's no place to go because we're already where we wanted to be. We've arrived. So go just be here because <laughs> you've arrived. There's no place to go. There's nothing to do. Everything is already okay. And so that's the kind of language that we want to use. We want to say everything is fine. Everything's okay. No worries. No problems. What a marvelous moment. All right, Susan, we'll let you go and go. Be in paradise. Thank you. We'll see you. See you soon. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye bye.